0: particularly spiritually and morally he was certainly not a perfect man there are no perfect people and uh, never have been on this planet with the exception of our Lord and yet uh, God is able to use people to accomplish his will and if they will commit themselves striving to be obedient to him uh, he will use us and he's used many people in human history and Jacob was certainly one of them you remember he, Ended up having 12 children, 12 sons and one daughter. And the rest of the Bible, uh, the rest of the book of Genesis beginning in chapter 37 narrows our attention to one of those sons. Uh, So we had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They're the great patriarchs of uh, Judaism and of the Old Testament and of the Israelites. And now for the rest of this book, all the way to chapter 50, we have our attention directed very specifically uh, to this one individual. And you remember when we were introduced to him, uh, he is but a teenager. He's 17 years old. And he is the apple of his father's eye. You remember uh, it is clear that um, this boy, during those 17 years, received special treatment from his father. Uh, there's no question that Jacob showed parental uh, partiality. You can somewhat understand, given the circumstances, uh, do you remember when he met Rachel, that was it for him. He, he wanted to marry her, and that, that would be the end of it. And yet he was conned, as he had conned others, deceived, and ended up having to uh, marry another woman in order to have her But it's clear uh, for the rest of his life that he showed partiality toward Rachel and her children. uh, Joseph being the firstborn son. So much so that he would uh, give this boy um, special gifts that he did not give the other boys. Like that multicolored tunic. Uh, Parental partiality is not good. Uh, You can understand that that goes against Bible uh, concepts con- the concept of being righteous, uh, God himself shows no partiality. He is not a respecter of persons, and it's harder for you and you and I to um, to maintain that stance in our own lives, uh, but we ought to do so, especially when it comes to children because you can you can breed within a home uh, jealousy and discontentment and all kinds of um, animosity and hostility that can wreak havoc upon the home, and that's certainly what occurred in his family. Uh, The Bible says the boys couldn't speak a kind word to Joseph. They they literally hated that boy. And a lot of that, no doubt, instigated by Jacob himself. And then to complicate matters further, God blessed uh, Joseph with the ability to interpret dreams. And you remember he had those dreams that uh, appeared to place his brothers and even his father in subservience to him. And the dumb boy made the mistake of telling his brothers about that. That really went over well. So they had more reason to dislike him. Well, that sets the stage for that day when those brothers were uh, out of town, uh, out on family business, a good distance from town. And I suppose that uh, Jacob became concerned about their well-being, so much so that against his better judgment he decided to send Joseph uh, out in search of the brothers to check on them, check on their well-being. The brothers were uh, situated around Shechem. And you remember last in our last study, we described a very unpleasant, distasteful uh, incident that occurred there. Perhaps uh, Jacob was concerned about that, uh, them being in that area. So he sends out Joseph. And off Joseph goes, sporting that Multicolored tunic that God, uh, that uh, his father had given him. Well, do you remember when he arrived there in the vicinity of Shechem where uh, he understood the brothers would be, they weren't there. And one of the townspeople uh, came over to him and, uh, I mean, saw this teenage boy wandering around out in the open field looking lost and asked him, who are you looking for? And he explained who his brothers were and they said, the man said, well, they were here. Uh, but I overheard one of them say that they were going on toward Dothan. Well, Shechem was a good 50 miles from home and Dothan is even further, probably another 10 or 12 miles from home. So this is a good distance from home in a day when you don't have automobiles and trains to ride. So off he goes in the direction of Dothan in search of his brothers and he comes upon them and they see him coming off in the distance and you remember what uh, one or more of them said. Behold, here comes the dreamer. Referring to the dreams that he had had about them. And then he said, let's kill him and we'll just see what becomes of his dreams. But the oldest brother, Reuben, spoke up in defense of his little brother and said, fellas, let's not kill our own brother. Instead, let's place him in this cistern, this dry well, the implication being that Uh, he would die of natural causes, so to speak, and they wouldn't be responsible for directly shedding his blood. And the brothers agreed to that. And so when Joseph arrived in their midst with cruel hands, they took him into custody. You know, the Bible doesn't record everything that occurred in that interaction there. We catch a glimpse of it later, but they must have handled him roughly and stripped that tunic off of him and cast him into that pit. Well, they sat down to uh, have a meal together when, off in the distance from the north, there came a trade caravan that was um, involved in, in various types of merchandise, including human flesh. They did slave trading as well as other articles of commercial value. And you remember one of the brothers said, hey, let's sell it, that way we'll be rid of him, and yet we'll make money on the side. And so when the caravan arrived, they went over and pulled him up out of that pit and sold their own brother into slavery for 20 paltry pieces of silver. And off he went with that caravan, headed in a southerly direction uh, toward Egypt. The Bible does not tell us where Reuben was when that transaction was made. He was out of pocket. But when he came back into their midst and went over to the pit and found out what they had done, the Bible says he tore his clothes. That's very typical of uh, Oriental grief. Uh, Even today, uh, Jews, uh, too expensive, I guess, to tear your clothes, but they will pin a torn ribbon to their lapel. It was a cultural manifestation of grief. And he said, the boy is not, and where shall I go? That older brother had enough sense to know that this was... uh, unbelievably callous tragic business now the brothers start thinking about okay what are we going to tell dad so they take that tunic that they strip from their brother they tear it to make it look as if it had been uh, assaulted by a wild beast they killed one of their uh, animals and uh, put blood on it and when they returned home they laid it down in front of their father and allowed him to draw the false conclusion. That this favorite son had, in fact, been killed, perhaps eaten by a wild beast, and he was no more. And Jacob believed sincerely that that's what had taken place, and entered into a period of mourning that was so prolonged, so intense that it endangered his life and health. Have you ever known anyone to suffer a loss? that was such that uh, the grieving process took a greater toll on them than perhaps we would say normally would be the case. Uh, I've known people that mourned and died as a result within just a very few short months of the loss of a a child or spouse or some such person. So it can happen. And his sons gathered around their father and tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted at the loss of this treasured, favored son. Well, do you remember how the Bible describes that this caravan uh, took him to, on down into Egypt? Can you imagine what it must have been like the first night that they encamped on their way to Egypt? Uh, sitting around the campfire, perhaps. Joseph there, bound, no doubt. He must have, you know, been listening, thinking somewhere out in the darkness. My dad's going to come and save me. But it didn't happen. And when he finally arrived in Egypt, he was placed on the auction block and sold into the home of a high ranking um, Egyptian official. Uh, Potiphar, you know, the term that's used to refer to him, uh, translated in our uh, English versions, uh, officer, is the. Hebrew word for a eunuch, and uh, this concept, of course, is very odd to the American mind, probably to the whole West, less so to the Eastern mind, Uh, but a eunuch was a person who voluntarily gave up his ability to function sexually, and the reason why individuals in antiquity would do this is because of what it brought them. Uh, it would bring them high positions in government, high positions, especially in uh, in connection with the royal family. And there were other circumstances that they could benefit from. So they, you know, they had their future secured. They were financially and in in terms of position in life uh, set for the rest of their lives. And so there were people that were quite willing to make this sacrifice. And that's the term they choose to refer to Potiphar. Well, you can't help but wonder if perhaps that helps to explain, to some extent, the behavior of his wife. Of course, the Bible says that even as as a teenage boy, Joseph was a handsome, handsome fellow. And the Bible records for us the fact that Potiphar's wife, on several occasions, made sexual advances toward Joseph. Now, what do you suppose would be the mindset of a 17-year-old boy in that predicament. Knowing what the Bible teaches and how God created the male to function in his interest in women, really in unique ways that women do not have for men, and here he is out of his homeland and yes he's been traumatized by being thrust into a foreign, unfriendly, cultural environment. Here's a woman that's offering herself to him. Well. God gives us a little glimpse into his mind and lets us know exactly what's going on inside this boy. When on one of those occasions she made advances toward him, he once again rejected those advances and made this statement, chapter 39, verse 9, how could I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say... uh, you know, sin against my master, offend my employer or my slave owner. Uh, he doesn't say anything about concern about his own parents. No, this boy is concerned about offending God. So doesn't that tell us that that's what was holding this boy together? <laughs> He'd been yanked out of his homeland, yanked out of his childhood, yanked out of his, his family, his culture, his language thrown into this hostile environment where, by the way, he's, he's treated as a slave. And uh, we don't, I think, fully fathom what a slave went through in ancient times. And yet, even if he's lost just about everything that gave him meaning, stability in life, he didn't lose his religion and the morals that came from that religion. He didn't lose his relationship, his connection to God. Now that was established at some point during that 17-year period of his childhood. How many of our young people need to take a look at Joseph and realize, I don't care how young you are, when life is coming at you and you have all kinds of options and possibilities, is your number one concern to stay in a right relationship with God and please Him, even if it brings great hardship into your life? And causes you to turn down many options that most people, most young people, would jump at. Well, do you remember one day she caught him indoors alone? All the other estate workers were outdoors. She once again made advances toward him. But this time he turned and did what Paul urges men to do in such a scenario in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 flee fornication. Boy, he did that. He turned and ran and she obviously reached out and grabbed for him and caught his outer tunic. And he felt the tug and so he just let it slip off his his body and he ran on outdoors. And she used that article of clothing to bolster her concocted claim that as a matter of fact, Joseph had come on to her, perhaps even implying rape. And When Potiphar got home that evening and she told that story, it's clear from the text, he believed believed she was telling him the truth. And consequently, he had Joseph consigned to prison. Now notice that this boy has gone from being so severely mistreated by his own brothers that they sell him as a slave. He endures a period of time in which he's functioning as a slave. Now he's put into prison. How would you expect him to conduct himself at this point in life? You know, it would be easy at this point in life to say, you know what? What good is it to follow God? What's it done for me? Slavery? Now being in a prison? Where's God? How many people go through suffering and hardship, pain, illness, loss of loved ones? I mean, you just go on and multiply all the things that we all have gone through in life. And many of us have, the younger you are, the more you've got coming down the pike. Just wait. How many of us uh, have questioned whether or not maybe, maybe our religious uh, convictions are, are cockeyed? Maybe they're not really true. Why would God let people who are trying to follow him and attend services regular and live the Christian life? Uh, why, would be, why would we have to go through things that are excruciating either physically or uh, emotionally? Now, there's never any indication in the Bible that Joseph... Uh, um, wrestled with that. You don't seem to see any indication that he faltered. In fact, he so conducted himself in, in prison that the warden placed him in charge of other prisoners. So see, he, he's conducting himself in such a way that he's noticed by the top officials and they elevate him even in the midst of prison. And that brought him into contact with a certain classification of Inmates. Uh, those who had been in the former employ of Pharaoh himself. But because of infractions or insults for some reason or another, uh, Pharaoh sent them to prison. One morning he came in uh, to their midst. And look at his attitude. You know, talk about a Christian attitude. It's not, oh man, you know, how are you guys doing? I had a rough, life, rough night's sleep. and Aren't you guys sick of this prison? I cannot believe we're here. Nothing like that. He was focused on them. They're looking visibly uh, depressed. And he says, What's the matter, fellas? What, what's going on? Notice that concern for their situation rather than his own. Now, you remember the, um, the butler spoke up first. Um, the term cupbearer refers to an individual in, uh, who, who is essentially a poison taster. Uh, You know, all of these monarchs in ancient history were fearful of assassination and so forth, so they would have their food and drink uh, tested. And, uh, you know, if if the king was going to be poisoned, then the tester would, that'd be the end of his his career. But uh, there were, again, a lot of people willing to take such positions because of the high position it put them in. And uh, that was his role. And for whatever reason, he had been consigned to prison. And so when Joseph asked him and and his colleague there, why they were so visibly despondent, uh, he spoke up and he said, well, I've had a dream. And uh, Joseph, you remember, uses the name of God and says, well, God has empowered me to interpret the dream. Tell me what you dream. And you remember he related the details of it. And Joseph said, well, your dream means that within three days, you're going to be reinstated in your courtly capacity before Pharaoh. Remember what he said at that point? He said, when that day comes, will you please remember me sitting down here in prison? I didn't do anything to deserve to be here. Well, the baker sitting over there listening to this, he says, I've had a dream too. But sadly, after relating the details to Joseph, Joseph has to inform him. Your dream means that within three days, you will suffer execution. And the terminology, the language, seems to indicate some form of impalement. Well, at the end of three days, both of those dreams came true. Uh, the baker was executed, and the cupbearer was reinstated before Pharaoh. And here's another startling statement of, of the Bible. He promptly forgot about Joseph. And so Joseph sat in prison, and look again at the Bible terminology in its um, uh, meticulous use of language because in the Bible like a year or two years can mean any part of that but uh, Moses goes out of his way to say two full years he was in there for an additional two full years and don't you imagine he was thinking I wonder why the butler didn't remember this what I did for him you know, and this is the point at which I would think a young man would say, you know what, enough's enough. This is ridiculous for me to have to go through all this. No indication. That's the way he felt. I guess he would have still been sitting there at the end of that two year period, but suddenly Pharaoh himself had dreams. And he began to summon out of his empire all those individuals that claimed to be able to deal in such matters. You know, um, there was less of this uh, for most of american history than we have today Uh, today our civilization especially since the 60s post-world war ii we've been inundated with all sorts of um, of this kind of thing in the 60s uh, that group put out a a song called the age of aquarius based on the astrological forecasting and people checked their horoscope uh, in the newspaper to see how the alignment of the stars and so forth and and then we had uh, uh, exorcism come in, that, the movie The Exorcist came out, I think that was in the 60s, and we've just been inundated with all kinds. Now you can turn on cable TV and there's people that are going around searching for ghosts, and, and uh, you can look at these programs where a fellow claims to be in contact with somebody in, from the dead, and he's talking to the audience and trying to g- give that information you know, to the person sitting there in the audience, and this just goes on and on. Psychic hotline. You know, um, there are some things that the Bible doesn't go out of its way to explain fully to us. But it does this one. And from beginning to end, the Bible teaches, that's all a bunch of bunk. There's nothing to it. There's not anything about the alignment of the stars, your birthday, or psychic vibrations over telephone lines by which anybody can tell you anything about your financial future, let alone your love life. It's all false, and Christians of all people on the planet ought to understand that and not be sucked into that stuff. That so many people that you and I know out in the world uh, consider there to be something too. The polls are very clear about that. More than half of Americans think that you can engage in paranormal activity and be in contact with the dead. The other thing that the Bible plainly teaches about this it uses a number of terms in our, in our English Bibles, Old Testament words, New Testament words, translated words like uh, diviner, uh, enchanter, uh, member of the uh, medium or witch of in, indoor, um, a, a lot of other terms. And uh, one of those terms is used over in Revelation 21.8, and it says that those who dabble in such matters will spend their eternity in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. That's how God feels about it. It's fake. You can't count on it. It's counterfeit. There's nothing they can do for you. And if you believe there is and you engage in that, you're going to go to hell. Why? Because it's an alternative religion. Hasn't God given us everything we need, all things that pertain to life and godliness? Peter said. Why would we think something like that would give us additional assistance? God takes that personal. That is distrusting God. You see that? Now here's Egypt at perhaps one of its pinnacles as a world empire, civilization. And he calls, he gets, he, he draws out, he's the king, he's Pharaoh. He can bring all these people that know about this stuff. Are they able to help him? What's that tell you? And that's when the butler went. Oh, I've been remiss. There was a fellow in prison a couple of years ago that interpreted my dream and the baker's dream, and they came true. Pharaoh said, you go get that fellow." So they went to the prison system to retrieve him, and to show you something of the prison system of that day, they had to shave him, clean him up, and put some clothes on him. See, if you went to get somebody from prison today, you'd say, okay, shut off your color TV and your air conditioner and follow me, something like that. That's not the prisons of antiquity. They were dungeons, harsh, temperature not regulated. And they weren't interested in feeding prisoners well, just keeping them alive. No restroom, no toilet in a prison system like that. So they clean him up and stand him before that ancient monarch. And Pharaoh says, I understand you can help me. And once again, you get another glimpse into Joseph's uh, Mentality, his attitude, his psychological state. He, he in essence, says, well, there's a God. Well, Pharaoh believed in many gods. Joseph uses the name of God, what, five times in this little discourse that he has with Pharaoh and makes the point, there is a God, he's the God of heaven, and he has empowered me to interpret dreams. You know, remember, Daniel uh, came back at Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know, you shouldn't put all your all these guys to death they might deserve it but you're asking them to do something they really can't do but there really is a God and he has enabled me to do it so you remember Pharaoh related uh, the dreams it was kind of a two-part dream one involving cows and one involving heads of grain remember lean and fat and uh, Joseph said now this is the same dream it's told in two different forms in order to emphasize the certainty with which this is going to take place. Now let me give you the the application and the details of it. He said that first seven years of, um, for the next seven years as the parallel to those uh, fat cows and, and thick heavy grain, that's an indication of seven years of agricultural productivity that will be so uh, tremendous, I mean the, the, the land will produce bountifully here in Egypt and what, uh, but, but at the end of that seven year period there's gonna be another seven year period and this will be one of deprivation, famine, hardship and suffering and what you need to do during this first seven years of plenty and prosperity is a, appoint a governor who will be responsible for mobilizing the nation and stockpiling all of the surplus produce in order to prepare the nation for that seven year period of hardship. And that Pharaoh, that ancient Gentile pagan monarch said, well, who would be a better man for that job? than this one in whom the spirit of God resides. That sounds like Caleb who had another spirit in him. At that moment, he elevated this um, foreigner. Notice that. Egyptians didn't particularly ethnically like non-Egyptians. But here's a Hebrew. He elevates this Hebrew who has been a slave and who has been a convict. Elevates him to what was essentially the top political post of the Egyptian empire, second only to Pharaoh in the sense that Pharaoh did not relinquish his throne but he placed the empire under the direction and guidance of this new governor. He even uh, took off of his uh, hand the royal signet ring. You now that's the ring that monarchs wore that were used to authenticate governmental decrees. Send them forth with all the authority of the throne behind them. He took that off his hand put it on Joseph. He placed Joseph in the second chariot you know, that's the one that rides maybe slightly behind but to the side of Pharaoh himself. Dressed him in royal Egyptian regalia, changed his name, gave him an Egyptian name. Astounding. He's been through many, many years of hardship. And yet, uh, now that things are looking up, he meets and marries uh, an Egyptian girl and they end up having two children, two sons. Remember the day that first little boy was born? Wow, the Bible, you know, God um, being who he is, he gives us all kinds of substance in scripture that it's our responsibility to dig out. He names that little boy Ephraim. We say Ephraim, which means um, One who causes to forget. Why in the world would you name your firstborn son forgetting? Well, we don't have to wonder. He tells us. He says, now God is allowing me to forget. And look at the two things he lists. One, my King James has toil. Look closely at that word. That could have just as easily been translated my trauma, my hardship, tribulation, stress, anguish. Okay? What's that tell you he's been going through? And, he says, now I can start to forget maybe, my father's house. Do you not see that this boy has been tormented all these years by thoughts of dad and home, not permitted to finish his childhood? His dad never came searching for him and to rescue him? And now that he's in a position to go anywhere he wants and do what he wants, he shows no interest in going and checking on dad. Why? This boy feels he was betrayed in the worst possible way, by his own family. And he has gone through so much in life, so many hard knocks, so many... You know, this boy had psychological and physical scars that were permanent in his life. So much so that he names his first child Forgetting. Now maybe I can forget some of what I've been through. And he wasn't over it when the second boy was born either. He names him Manasseh, which means forgetting. I'm sorry, that was uh, Ephraim. Forget, uh, Manasseh means productive or fruitful. And again he explains, God is enabling me to be productive in the land, and look at this. You gotta underline this in your Bible of my affliction. You would have, you would have thought he'd say I'm now able to be productive in the land of my opportunity and, and uh, all of these wonderful blessings that I enjoy. No. He's still calling Egypt the land of his affliction and names his son accordingly. So we weren't there to see everything that boy went through but those two Decisions to name his children accordingly tell us loads, volumes, about what this boy has been through. During that first seven years of plenty, he uh, engages in his governmental responsibilities in fine fashion. He mobilizes the nation, does everything that needed to be done in order to prepare for the period of famine that was to come. At the end of that seven year period, sure enough, the seven year period of uh, affliction commenced and it was truly severe. In fact, the Egyptian population began crying out for governmental assistance. And um, Pharaoh said, go see the prime minister, the governor, uh, to be dealt with. And Joseph acted shrewdly in all of those dealings as uh, one would expect him to do. He was a conscientious and uh, proper thinking individual, I think. Well, do you remember is during that period that uh, this famine was so extensive that it, its tentacles reached way up into Palestine. And Joseph's uh, father one day called all of his sons together. Notice these are all grown men, so they have their own families. and They're situated various distances from each other, but they all are, are brought to a family council. And, and Jacob says, you know, this famine is, is rough. And uh, we're going to, have to, we're going to have to get some help here and I understand that there's sustenance down in Egypt so you need to load up, take necessary provisions for the trip, take money to purchase supplies and go down there and, and uh, get us sufficient food in order for us to survive as a family. And so in obedience to their father's uh, command uh, they did so. They loaded up and they traveled down into Egypt. And you remember they uh, arrived at the governmental distribution facility. And they were ushered into the presence of the prime minister himself, their own brother, whom they do not recognize. Can you understand why? They haven't seen this boy for, what, 20 years? And notice from age 17 to pushing 40, does your physical appearance change very much? Go get your high school annual. Uh, they didn't have them in Frank's day, but it, those of you who have a high school annual, go take a look. You remember doing that, looking at it, and thinking, hey, they got the wrong name under my picture under this picture. Now, we undergo tremendous physical change, especially if you're treated the way he was treated, no doubt. But that's not all. And he's the last person they expected to see in that position in, there. He, he's dressed in all this royal Egyptian regalia, wearing the Egyptian headdress, probably had a cobra or something, who knows. And he is fully enculturated even to the point that he speaks Egyptian fluently. He still remembers Hebrew. He can speak it and understand it, but he does not even address his brothers directly in Hebrew. He speaks Egyptian to an interpreter who then speaks Hebrew to them. They don't recognize him. But it is clear that he within seconds recognizes them and all those years of pent up anger hostility frustration came welling up within him and he blurted out at them you are spies now here are these brothers you know they've come down here just to buy some grain and here's this high egyptian official and he accuses them of espionage And I mean they start talking fast. No sir, no sir. We're we're all brothers. We're all the sons of one man. In fact, uh, one of us is not. That was Joseph. The rest of us, however, are telling you the truth. We are true men. His response to that is, I say you're spies. And so he throws all of them into prison. And leaves them there for three days. Then you remember he comes uh, to the prison, has them released, and says, look, I fear God. I'm going to allow all but one of you to go back home with the provisions you've come to purchase. I'm going to keep one of you hostage to make certain that you return. And what you are to do when you go home is to retrieve this alleged brother that you claim to have, because they they had said one is not, but one is still at home with our dad. Remember who that was? You remember how that boy came into existence? The family, you remember Rachel, the one true love of of, uh, Jacob's life, was unable to have children for many years of marriage. The day she realized that she was with child for the first time, she must have been elated. But do you know, when the time came for that child to be born, the family was out on a family trip in between towns, which you know would be pretty rough in our day, it happens, but but we have such a land of plenty and facilities, but of course midwives traveled with those family caravans in those days and she went into labor. And uh, the Bible, once again, is very meticulous. It describes this event as hard labor. So we're talking life-threatening labor. The midwives gathered around her and tried to reassure her that uh, she would be able to do this and yet she was unable to do so. And as she died, the text says, Here's another proof that the atheists are wrong, you know, assuming the Bible's true. It says, as her spirit was exiting her body. You and I, our personhood is our spirit that indwells our bodies. When the body dies, the spirit exits and continues to live. As her spirit was leaving her body, she named the little boy to whom she had just given birth Ben-O'Neill. Ben-Oni, which means son of my distress. And then she died. Now you know that Jacob was crushed and certainly would not have wanted that name to stick. Every time he calls the boy's name, he's reminded of his wife's death. So he changed his name from Ben-Oni to Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. So when these brothers explain to Joseph, we still have one brother at home, that's who they're talking about. And notice that Benjamin would have been too young to have participated in this conspiracy that landed him into Egypt. Plus the fact that all these other brothers are half-brothers. He is his one and only full-blooded brother. So it's clear that what he's concocting in his mind is, I'll let you go back home, I'll keep one of you hostage, but you don't come back here unless you bring this alleged brother you claim to have. He, he's, he's spinning this as, I, I've got to check out your story and see if you're telling me the truth. But his ulterior motive is, I want to see my little brother. Doesn't even seem to show any indication that he's interested in seeing his father. Well when he brings them out of prison and makes that speech to them, do you remember what happened? One of the brothers spoke up and said, now they don't know that he can understand what they're saying in Hebrew. We are very guilty concerning our brother. They're talking about Joseph. We saw, listen to the King James, We saw the anguish of his spirit when he besought us. That's new information. All the way back there when he was in that pit, two decades earlier, these brothers see this caravan. They gather around that pit. They reach down in there and pull him out with rough hands, and they prepare to sell him into slavery. What's going on? He is pleading with his brothers, guys, please don't do this to me. That's what was going on. And they were cold-hearted, callous. In fact, the fellow says, we wouldn't listen. And that's when Reuben speaks up. Yep. Didn't I tell you guys not to sin against that boy? Now his blood is being required of us. Now, Now wait a minute. That was a long time ago. 20 years? What's happened to you fellows in the meantime? Haven't you had any bad things happen? You're telling me out of all the things that have happened to you in the last 20 years, this is the event, the defining event in your life, that is the cause of what distress you are now facing. That's what they're thinking. Do you not see that they've been haunted all these years by what they did to that boy and feeling guilty? Feeling guilty. Now notice what's going on to Joseph. Listen to this. Surely two thoughts registered. One, these mean brothers that did what they did to me appear to be sorry. So much so that they're attributing this catastrophe in their life to what they did to me. And for the first time, he realizes they weren't all against him because Reuben spoke up and said, I tried to keep you guys from doing this. Now, how would you think that would affect a boy that suddenly realizes this? He turns and walks away from those fellas and goes away from them and cries like a baby. So moved at these realizations. He regained his composure. He came back and he said, okay, uh, we're just going to keep one of you hostage. He skips over the oldest, Reuben, and takes the second oldest, Simeon has him bound as they stand there and watch and led back into prison. Then provisions are given to them, he said you can can take what you came for, but he, he gives private instructions to his steward. When you load up all of these provisions, you put their money, without them knowing about it, back into their luggage and send them on their way. What's going on there? Well, these are the mean, cruel, greedy brothers that sold their own brother for 20 pieces of silver. It's a test. Off they go. They arrive at their first night's lodging. One of the brothers discovers the return to money. Their hearts sink. And here's the statement that the Bible says one or more of them made. What is this that God is doing to us? See, that's another explanation that the Bible gives for why trauma can come into our lives. The Bible gives at least five or six explanations. We don't really want to face this one. We don't want to face the fact that, you know why my life is in the shape it's in? It's because of what I've done. I can't blame this on God. In fact, God rightly ought to punish me for this. Does the Bible teach that God will punish Christians for their behavior? absolutely. Proverbs 3:11 that's quoted twice in the New Testament, whom I love, I chasten, discipline. And that's one way he does it. And these fellows have enough spiritual sense about them that they realize, you know our behavior deserves this and it's appropriate that God is punishing us for this. Well, they get home, you remember, come into the presence of their dad. Dad, you're not going to believe what's happened. This high government official down there accused us of being spies and took uh, Simeon into custody, put him in prison, and told us that when we get back home, we're to get Benjamin and take him back down there in order to verify our story. And if we could update Jacob's response, it was no way, Jose. That's not going to happen. You're not going to take the last son of Rachel back to Egypt. Dad, the man said we're not to come back down here and show our faces again. We've got to bring him back. You've got to allow us to do this. Jacob said, it's not happening and I would like to know why you told that man you had a brother back here at home. Did your mother ever say anything like that to you? Don't you know when to keep your mouth shut? Why did you tell those people that? They said, Dad, how did we know that if we told him we had a brother that he'd make us go get him. We were just trying to demonstrate that we were telling the truth. Well, they try to convince their father, but he's having none of it. And so they finally just go on about their business, go back and and do the work that they would do with their families and so forth. And over a period of time, we're not told how long, provisions get low. Jacob calls him all back together and says, you're gonna have to go back down there in order to get provisions. They said, dad, we're not going if you don't allow us to bring Benjamin. The man said, don't show your faces here again without him. And once again, Jacob hit the ceiling, was upset about it. And do you know that um, one of those boys stepped forward and said, Dad, Reuben actually, as you would expect, the most mature, he said, if uh, if you'll trust the safety of, of this lad to me, I will see that he gets back to you. Otherwise, you can take my two sons and kill him. He was giving a strong guarantee that he would do that. Well, against his better judgment, he realizes that the whole family is going to go down if we don't get provisions. The, the, the famine was that severe. And so he allows them to just take the boy. In fact, he says something to the effect, if this causes me to go to my grave, so be it. So be it. So they hurriedly gathered together Uh, The provisions for the trip, they get money to purchase more supplies, and they take the money that had been returned in their luggage previously. They hurry back down into Egypt. They arrive at the governmental distribution facility, but there they receive most disconcerting instructions. You are to proceed to the private residence of the prime minister himself. Now that shook them up. They thought, this is fishy. Uh, He's either going to attack us and put all of us into prison uh, something's not right but they obeyed the command, the, the instructions and they went uh, uh, to his private residence he was not there I think at the time he was involved in governmental duties but when it came time for him to return apparently uh, at about noon noontime meal uh, he comes into their midst and the first, uh, first thing they did was bow down to him just like those dreams predicted and the first words out of his mouth how's your dad is he still alive they said dad is alive and well and then he sees that 19, 20, 21 twenty twenty one-year-old boy his little brother and he kind of chokes out something to the effect you know may god be merciful or bless you my son and he turns around and leaves and shuts the door and. Cries, so moved at the sight of this little brother after all these years. He didn't cry over the other brothers, but he cried over that one. He gives orders for Simeon to be brought out of prison, has them all seated to be fed. He gives private orders uh, to one of these servers. You heap five times as much food on, on Benjamin's plate as all the other brothers. Once all of that is achieved, he says, I'm going to let you leave, but he privately instructs once again his steward, this time to take his silver chalice and to hide it in the luggage of the youngest of those brothers without any of them knowing about it. He allows them to take the provisions that they had come for, and by the way, they confronted, before Joseph came home, they confronted uh, the head steward and said, hey, we want you to know last time we were here. We paid for those provisions. But when we got home, when we got out of town, we discovered our money, but we promised. We paid. So see, they passed that test. And the fellow said, don't worry about it. You know, God must be blessing you. So they allowed them to leave with their provisions and with Benjamin. And they must have gotten out out of the city limits and thought, we made it. We made it. But you remember Joseph sent his attendants out in hot pursuit, and they overtook that caravan. And he even told them the speech to make. The gist of it was, you were to say to them, "How, why in the world would you steal from my master who's been so good to you, treated you so right? He makes the speech. They say, we haven't done anything wrong, but here, go ahead, check our luggage. Because you didn't need a, a Miranda or anything like that, you know, or a search warrant. And so they work, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us, they start with the oldest and work through the luggage. And when they get to that youngest boy, horror of horrors. There's the silver chalice. They take him into custody. And Joseph had told them to tell the brothers, we're not going to hold you guilty. You go on back home. And he will be responsible for his own actions. He's trying to get rid of them. He knows they're not guilty. He knows Benjamin's not guilty. Well, you think they're going to go and face their dad? So they just follow these officials back into town, brings them back into the presence of Joseph. He doesn't want them there, but he keeps up the charade. How dare you steal from me uh, when I've been so good? He, they hadn't stolen from him. One of the brothers steps up and says, Sir, please don't be angry with us. Please, I, I need to explain something to you. We had another brother. And... His demise nearly killed our dad. And if we don't get this boy back to him, it will. And then he makes an offer in behalf of all the brothers, in essence saying, if you'll let us get him back home to his dad, we'll come back, and we'll do whatever you want us to do. If you want to enslave us, treat us however you want to treat us, we've, we've just got to save this boy. Now don't you know that that caused Joseph to realize, these are different men. These are not the younger fellows that treated me the way they did. They've matured, they've grown, so much so that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for a half-brother, my own brother. He can stand it no longer. He bursts out crying right in front of them. Now, this this boy had all kinds of pent-up issues with which he had been dealing for so long and boy it came to a head and he burst out crying, gave orders for the room to be cleared of all Egyptian personnel. And then he turned to his brothers. Now imagine what these Hebrews are thinking about this high Egyptian governmental figure having kind of a nervous breakdown in their presence. What's going on with this guy? And he turns to them in chapter 45 and he says, Fellas, it's me, your brother, Joseph. And it's clear they don't believe it, it's not registering, and he, so he has to repeat it to them. And then he makes this incredible speech that's loaded not only with his willingness to overlook and forgive his brothers, but a much higher, more noble thing going on in his life and thinking, and that is that he could understand that this was all being worked out, orchestrated providentially by God who in fulfillment of the promise made to their forefather Abraham that he would see that the the seed line would be preserved in order to bless the entire world. That's all this is about here. So I don't hold it against you. And uh, it's my intention to take care of all of you. Well, he goes over to Benjamin and puts his arms around that boy and they just stand there hugging and weeping. And then he goes down the line and hugs each one of his brothers. And then they sat down and had a family conversation. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall and listen to what they said? He said, now, you go back home, tell, tell dad what's happened. Tell him I'm down here and I want everybody to move down here, I'm gonna take care of everybody. And so they, uh, they go back home. <laughs> and I can see that screen door fly open and hit the wall, you know. Dad, dad, guess what? Joseph's alive. In fact, he's the prime minister of the Egyptian empire. What do you think Jacob's reaction to that would be? Yeah, right. And it's clear from the, the, from the text, they've got to talk long and hard to convince that old man. Come on, in his mind... All these years, Joseph has been dead. You want to tell me he's not only alive, he's been alive all these years, but he's somehow over the Egyptian empire? That that doesn't sound very realistic. But they finally convince him and he he agrees to move the entire family. Remember, Stephen uh, gives a total figure of about 75. Of course, Joseph and his family was already there, but we're talking... Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It's it's a large uh, process to move that many people that many miles. Uh, Pharaoh provided what we would call moving vans to aid in the process and deeded them prime real estate, according to history, uh, for them to occupy. Joseph was permitted a very, very few uh, short years uh, before his father came to the end of his life. At the funeral, he threw himself down on the body of his father and wept. I'm sure in those waning years, he must have been trying to recapture, maybe, his lost childhood. You know, you can't do that. It's gone. It's gone forever. He received permission from Pharaoh for, to hold a funeral procession. The uh, Egyptians' mourning process occurred for 40 days. Then they had this procession all the way back to Palestine to inter his body in that cave of Machpelah where so many of the other ancestors were. And then when they finally got back to Egypt, got everybody resettled, the brothers got together and said, now we're gonna get it. Dad's gone, Joseph's gonna come after us. So they sought an audience with their famous brother. They came before him. Chapter 50. And they said, um, Joseph, before dad died, he told us after his death, he wanted us to come to you and to ask you in his name to forgive us for what we did to you. That caused Joseph to start crying, it hurt his feelings. And once again, he reiterated that God, he believed God was behind. He said, no, you, you meant to hurt me. But God meant it for good. And the Bible says he comforted them with those words. Came to the end of his own life at the age of 110. His body was embalmed according to Egyptian funeral technology, mummification. And he left this provision in his will. The day is coming when God is going to fulfill the promise that he made to our forefathers. He's going to give us the land of Canaan when that day occurs. I want my body disinterred here in Egypt and transported to the promised land and reinterred. That's fulfilled in Joshua chapter 24. They did it many years later. All right, we have uh, 65 books to go, which we'll... Work on next opportunity we get. What would you think if Joseph were living today? Would he be a Christian? Don't you think he, he lived his life conscious, no matter what was going on, adversity-wise? He was conscious of God and God's will for our lives. He'd be a Christian. He'd be a member of the Church of Christ. No doubt in my mind. You and I need to understand that uh, even as New Testament Christians, we're not going to be exempt from hardship and suffering. We may not have to go through anything like the magnitude of suffering he went through. But we must not think that we don't deserve to or that we ought to not have to face any such things. We will. We will. The question is, what are we made out of? Do we have the same spiritual metal that Joseph had? to bear up and withstand and not give in to Satan's ploys. That's what we all want to strive to be and do. Maybe you need to come tonight and make any, any sort of public adjustment as a Christian in uh, the way you're living your life. It's, if you're not a Christian, of course, we want you to obey the gospel of Christ through faith, repentance, <coughs> confession, and baptism. We ought to thank God that He has preserved for us these not. Fables or unhistorical stories. These are real people who lived. I'm convinced we're going to see them someday. We need to live our lives now. That we will be prepared uh, for the end of our own lives in anticipation of eternity. If you need to come, do that as we stand and sing.
1: Sheds on our way while we do his good will he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus but to trust and obey, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sign nor a tear, can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows, and the joys He bestows, are for those who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship we, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sins we will go, Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Please be seated. If you have not had the opportunity to partake of the (laughs) Lord's Supper, it has been prepared here for you. You'll come up to the front. As we sing this next song, you'll be served. You will turn with me to 208. 208. <clears throat> It is midnight and on, Dave, appreciate that. I didn't know how you were going to get that whole story in, but you did a good job. I mean, we appreciate it very much. Never get tired of listening to those old stories in the Bible. Let's all stand as we sing this final song. will be led in closing prayer. 389. 389. Hilltops of Glory. Homeward oh rejoicing, I tread its way. Higher I'm climbing each passing day, hilltops of glory now rise in view where all shall be made new hilltops of glory. I now can see oh brother, won't you come go with me? Safe on the mountains, I soon just then. Heal thoughts of glory, oh,